Welcome to the 33rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can now be pre-ordered through Amazon and Borders Books. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened this week and what does it mean? Jeremy, the past week has been a turning point for our nation when it comes to COVID-19. We've seen the number of new daily infections, hospitalizations, and deaths rapidly declining by more than half from the huge post-holiday spikes. We're also seeing many of the problems with distribution and administration of the various vaccines being solved and over 2 million doses being administered each day. And we now have a third vaccine, this one from Johnson & Johnson. This vaccine is slightly different than the Moderna and Pfizer ones. First, it only requires a single shot, which makes it very desirable for people who find it difficult to travel to a vaccination center or people living in rural geographies. Second, it can be stored at refrigerated temperatures for long periods which means that it could be administered through regular pharmacies and doctor's offices. Finally, it employs a different methodology to produce the immunity by embedding the messenger RNA that all vaccines use inside a harmless adenovirus rather than a lipid shell. Although emergency use authorization for people over the age of 18 was given by the FDA on a 22 to zero vote, there's been controversy related to the vaccine's efficacy. As we discussed in the last Coronavirus The Truth episode, the data out of the phase three clinical trials indicates a lower success rate at preventing infection than following vaccination with either the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. But listeners need to remember what we also said on the show This vaccine, the one from Johnson & Johnson, was tested during a peak outbreak of the coronavirus, and it was administered in South Africa, which is where the new highly transmissible variants exist. As such, it could actually be just as effective. We can't be sure. And most importantly, the vaccine was almost 90% effective at protecting people against serious disease, hospitalizations, and death. And these are, of course, the most important reasons for administering it. Finally, over the weekend, the Senate passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And the House is certainly, or almost certainly, going to pass the same version tomorrow. It includes expanded federal funding for COVID programs, 
including $46 billion for testing and tracing, $7.6 billion for pandemic response at community health centers, $5.2 billion to support research, development, and manufacturing of vaccines and other therapeutics, and $7.7 billion to expand the public health care workforce. The majority of Americans will receive a $1,400 stimulus payment. And those who are unemployed will receive the additional $300 per week of enhanced benefits through September 6, 2021. There'll also be $128 billion to help K through 12 schools reopen, $350 billion in state and local aid, $25 billion to help restaurants and other food and drinking establishments, $19 billion in emergency rental insurance, and over $7 billion to fund the Paycheck Protection Program, loans for small and medium-sized businesses. Hopefully, this package will keep the economy of the United States moving forward as we are able to reopen in the context of the available and rapidly being administered vaccines. Robbie, a listener wrote, we seem to be learning more about the currently available vaccines each week. What is still uncertain? Jeremy, this is an important question. And it takes us all the way back to one of the first programs we did early on the Coronavirus The Truth podcast series. At that point, we pointed out that when scientists say the phrase, we don't know, that's exactly what they mean. They don't know. Unfortunately, what people often hear is something ominous, even when the likelihood that that's the case is actually very small. As an example, we can't be certain that the current vaccines are safe for young children or pregnant moms. The reason we can't be sure isn't that the data indicates any harm, it's that we haven't tested it on young kids or pregnant women. In fact, if anything, the data we have indicates that the vaccine is most likely safe for both groups. Currently, studies on kids are being done by different vaccine companies, and already tens of thousands of pregnant women have been vaccinated without any apparent harm to them or the baby. But of course, the information is very preliminary, and that's why we say we don't know. Similarly, we don't know how effective the vaccines will be against the new viral strains. And here there is some concern. Because based on early research, there is some evidence of diminished efficacy when this vaccine is tested against these strains compared to when it's tested against the original virus. But overall, the data still indicates that vaccination will be protective certainly against severe infection. On the other hand, the virus continues to mutate, and that's why health officials are trying to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. A third uncertainty is how long the protection generated by the vaccine will last. The reason is twofold. First, the vaccines have only been administered to broad segments of the population for a few months just impossible to say what's going to happen in 12 months because we're not at that milepost. And 
we do know that the vaccine can be very effective even when antibody levels drop in our blood because the vaccine primes the cells that produce the antibodies to be at high alert and to respond rapidly when exposed to the virus. As such, even individuals who might have no measurable antibody level could be well protected against infection. But testing for sure would require explicit viral challenge, something that we are not doing. One thing we do know is that the immunity created following infection seems to last for a prolonged period of time. Because remember, the virus has been around, people have been infected for almost a year. And we say that because it remains very rare that someone who's had COVID-19 becomes reinfected. As such, there's good reason to believe that the vaccine will also lead to relatively long-term immunity, at least as long as the virus remains relatively unchanged. But once again, we say we don't know because we can't be 100% certain. What researchers will do is look at evidence of infection after vaccination and try to figure out whether the problem is diminished immunity versus viral mutation. If it's the former, they'll suggest a booster shot. If it's the latter, they'll modify the messenger RNA in the vaccine to code for the altered spike protein and then have people receive a third booster type dose. As we said on the show, the mRNA technology that's being used should allow rapid modification, estimates being as short as six weeks, which would then allow us to control the virus once enough people have been vaccinated, even if we can't fully eradicate COVID-19. Finally, we can't be certain whether people who have been vaccinated could still harbor the virus and transmit the infection without being asymptomatic. Some of the fear about this possibility derives from observing the 40% or so of people with COVID-19 who have no symptoms and yet they are infected and we know that they can infect others almost as frequently as people with symptoms. It's not hard to understand why figuring out this question is difficult. First, we'd have to test large numbers of people who have received the vaccine and seem to be completely healthy to figure out if any of them are infected. Then we need to find out whether they have transmitted it to other people with whom they've come in contact and finally, even if someone who came in contact with them becomes sick, did they get it from the person who was vaccinated or might they have gotten it from someone else who wasn't vaccinated with whom they came in contact? Once again, there's positive news. The earliest data indicate that the risk of asymptomatic infection in people who have been vaccinated is significantly lower than in people who have not been vaccinated. And therefore it's reasonable to assume that their chances of transmitting the virus is reduced. But once again, it's too early to be certain. Despite 
all of the lack of definitive answers, what we can be sure about is that the vaccine works and it protects people from the threats of serious illness, hospitalization, and death that exist today. And we can with near certainty say that it's safe with almost no major complications besides a very rare allergic reaction, at least in the short run. And based upon all of that, what makes sense is for people to get vaccinated, to protect their health and the lives of those around them that they love. With millions of doses having been administered already, uh, what's happening to vaccine hesitancy across the country? As you know, I worried early in the vaccine development process that people would be cautious before pursuing vaccination. The reasons were many, including the rapid speed of development, the relatively unproven track record of the messenger RNA technology, and the low bar for efficacy that the FDA had set for vaccine approval. But now that we have the vaccine, almost all of these concerns have dissipated. And as a result, vaccine hesitancy is shrinking at a rapid pace. Almost 60% of people have either already received the vaccine or plan to be vaccinated as soon as they become eligible. And another 22% say that they're following the vaccine's success closely. And among them, the percentage shifting into the definitively yes category is continuing to grow. And the combination of the two, along with people who are immune from previous infection, indicates that herd immunity, something we've talked about on almost every show early in the Coronavirus The Truth podcast series, it will become a reality, I believe, by the end of summer. Again, assuming the various viral variants don't unbalance the scale. The largest force moving people from uncertainty to yes seems to be friends and family who become vaccinated and who don't suffer any significant reactions or complications. There's a huge amount of research that's been done on so-called viral spread, whether it's from an actual virus or just the spread of new ideas in social media. And what they find is that there's a so-called S-shaped curve. Early resistance is followed by rapid numbers and a tipping point is reached. And once that happened, people jump in with open arms who might not have considered it in the past. And based on the numbers we're seeing, unless something unexpected happens, we should cross that threshold soon to the benefit of both those vaccinated and those who prefer to wait. Robbie, a listener said, we haven't talked about nursing homes lately. They were responsible for about 40% of the deaths in the early phases of the pandemic. What's new? Jeremy, the news is very positive when it comes to nursing home residents. We've seen a marked decline in the number of people who have died in these institutions since the broad vaccine administration began. More specifically, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is unconnected with Kaiser Permanente, the number of new nursing home cases is down by 83% and deaths by 66%. And most of this data was gathered in January 
when, as you know, the cases, hospitalizations, and deaths were spiking in the post-holiday time period. The positive results are another proof for the efficacy and safety of the vaccines. And remember, not every resident in a nursing home facility has yet to be vaccinated. And moreover, only half of the people who have been vaccinated have received their second shot. So based on this success, we can dismiss the views of those who say that deaths over the past 12 months from, for nursing home residents came from individuals as a result of their elderly age and medical afflictions that they might have died otherwise. No, the deaths were certainly contributed to by the virus and preventing them will be facilitated by the vaccines that have been administered and will be in the near future. Robbie, a listener wanted to know how the mutation rate of this virus compares to others. We keep hearing about variant strains and they might be vaccine resistant. Is this something that happens with all viruses or is this one uh, especially you know, extra likely to mutate as compared to others? How does this compare? Jeremy, the emergence of new variants is the one area of the pandemic that continues to pose major danger for the future. We talked in the last episode about the B117, the B1351, and the P1 variant that, come, that has come to the United States from the United Kingdom, South Africa, and Brazil. And scientists have now identified over a dozen major variants circulating worldwide, including from many parts inside the United States. However, the large number of variants doesn't mean that this coronavirus has a greater propensity to mutate. In fact, compared to most viruses, like the influenza virus, this coronavirus mutates slower. There are two reasons why this happens. The first is that this particular coronavirus actually has an enzyme that autocorrects many of the errors that happen. And the second is that this coronavirus is a single strand, while other viruses like influenza have multiple pieces. And when there's more than one piece, large chunks of genetic material can be exchanged between strands, rapidly speeding up the mutation process. So why do people see this virus as mutating quickly? Two reasons. First, the virus is easily transmitted and it replicates and turns over more frequently than other viruses like the flu. So there are more opportunities for random mutations to occur. And the second is that by changing a single amino acid among the 1,200 that exist, this virus is able to produce an even more effective spike protein that allows it to successfully latch onto the cells in our respiratory tract and accelerate the process of transmission and infection. In most other viruses, a single mutation rarely has such massive impact. You know, Jeremy, applying words like smart or lucky to a pathogen that doesn't have anything even resembling a nervous or circulatory apparatus is oxymoronic. But that sort of is the case when it comes to this coronavirus. However, in another way, it's been unlucky. Had it come ashore a decade or so in the past, before we had the messenger RNA vaccine development technology, it would have inflicted five or 10 times more damage than it has. From a biological sense, it would have been far more successful, 
now it appears to be about to be defeated. Robbie, you mentioned on the last episode of Coronavirus, The Truth, that Pfizer was requesting from the FDA approval to meet less stringent storage and transportation requirements. What happened with that? This week, the FDA gave its approval to store the Pfizer vaccine for up to two weeks at standard freezer temperatures, temperatures that are much lower than it would take to preserve the new J&J vaccine, but ones that can be met by all hospitals and many drugstores. This will be particularly important in rural areas where the less dense population is benefited by being able to stretch out the time for vaccine arrival to administration and in communities that have yet to purchase the ultra cold storage equipment that we thought this vaccine would require. As a result, there's progressively less reason why we shouldn't be able to fully vaccinate everyone in the United States who wants to be by the end of summer. Robbie, one question I have while we're talking about the vaccine is about generic drug manufacturers. We see Pfizer, we see Johnson & Johnson, we see Moderna with these vaccines that are you know, literally helping us get out of the pandemic. Why aren't they, because of the state of emergency, giving their patents over to generic drug manufacturers to help increase production? What's going on with that? Is that something that's even possible? What's preventing this from happening? This is a great question for several reasons. The first one is we actually saw a little bit of collaboration when one of these companies provided the information to a competing drug manufacturing firm, one whose vaccine didn't seem to be go any, going anywhere and will be assisting in the production of vaccine. But it raises a bigger issue, which is the role of patent protection. Now, in the short run, one of the challenges that exists is actually availability of some of the equipment and some of the supplies needed to create the vaccine. So just simply turning it over would be difficult, but people have suggested they should do just that. Open up the process, let generic manufacturers in other countries start manufacturing the vaccine to shorten the period to when we'll have all 7 billion people across the globe vaccinated against this. Drug companies are loath to, to release this information. In fact, for most medications, they put up higher and higher barriers, threatening lawsuits, bringing lawsuits, creating a wealth of patents that they can apply to almost any competitor who comes into the marketplace. And what's the reason? Money. And people are looking in the drug industry, not initially when the federal government, remember, bought the, uh, what would be 600 million doses and will be giving it out for free. But what's gonna happen if it becomes an influenza type problem with year over year vaccination and the drug company manufacturers are wanting to preserve that for themselves as one can imagine, for the economic benefits that will accrue to the company and its shareholders. 
Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. Obviously, a third vaccine is great news. What else is good this week? Jeremy, there are two pieces. The first one is that people who have recovered from COVID-19 appear to have a tenfold greater level of immunity compared to people who've never had the infection. This is data from an article in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it would imply that the risk of reinfection is extremely small, something that we have seen in actual practice. The second piece is relative to the ability of people to generate a potent rapid immune response after prior infection. The study from Nature Communications measured the amount of neutralizing antibodies that ensue after infection. Although they found that the levels declined by half over a two month time period, what they found is that the level of B cells, the lymphocytes that produce the antibodies themselves increase rather than decline. As such, you could imagine them lying and waiting until the virus comes back and then immediately pouncing, springing into action, offering rapid protection against reinfection. Vaccination is still being recommended for individuals who have experienced the prior infection, but we now know that these individuals generate a massive boost in immunity after just a single injection, leading to the possibility that in the future, a single injection may be the recommended approach going forward, but today it remains a two vaccine process through the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccines. Robbie, as I talk with educators and parents, mental health concerns remain a major worry for them, um, oftentimes even much more so than the virus itself. What are we learning? As you imply, Jeremy, the virus and social distancing have inflicted major harm on kids of all ages. Despite overall health services declining across the United States last year, the demand for mental health care skyrocketed. The group that appears hardest hit was teenagers. More specifically, for kids 13 to 18 years of age, the number of mental health claims doubled, although the total number of services for other medical problems halved. And the level of psychological distress was even greater for girls. The three most common diagnoses were major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and adjustment disorder. Furthermore, both intentional self-harm and overdoses increased by nearly 100%. With mental health services already strained across the nation, the prognosis for societal relief when it comes to psychological health seems poor. Fortunately, there is a bright spot with the vaccines here and the number of people immunized growing, there's a sense of optimism that's spreading. 48% of people surveyed reported they were hopeful about the future compared to only 20% six months ago. And according to an Axios survey, the rosy view of the future is particularly noticeable in the responses of those individuals who've already been vaccinated. And as we've said on the show, 
That's 2 million more people every single day. Robbie, I remember about a year ago talking about the origin of the virus. Um, are there any new insights? Jeremy, your memory is excellent. The answer is yes, uh, but also maybe. Let me explain. Teams of scientists from the World Health Organization have been studying this question for several months and they're making good progress. Four different studies have identified coronaviruses in bats and pangolins. Those are that scaly ant-eating mammals. And they've studied this virus, not just in China, but in, across Southeast Asia and Japan. And they're finding genetic forms of this coronavirus that are almost identical to the ones that have now infected humans. Now that would imply that the leap from bats to humans happened naturally because we're seeing in so many different geographies rather than being the result of some kind of nefarious plan or laboratory error. And the ubiquitous nature of the virus would indicate a high probability that a mutation could have occurred in any one of several different nations. Moreover, the researchers have shown that the change that was needed for this to happen, for the virus to leap from the bat to the human, involved a single amino acid, something that's very imaginable through the normal mutation process. And based upon those findings, the WHO team were very close to concluding that this virus, the SARS-CoV-2, originated in bats and then through a minor genetic alteration, possibly through intermediary animal, came to infect humans and that nothing human was done to create this change in the virus or its inoculation and transmission. However, since the preliminary WHO findings were released, other scientists have pointed out the restrictions that were placed on the research team that prohibited them from examining laboratory research documents or interviewing the majority of the scientists involved in that work. These critics questioned whether these genetic changes definitively happened in the wild or whether there was still a possibility that in some way there was a human intervention that might have occurred. And in response, the WHO is holding off publication of its final report, at least for now. Jeremy, as an historian, you can trace back to Jefferson and Hamilton, the battle between those elected officials who favor a strong federal government against those who advocate for states' rights. Today, we have some states like Texas talking about eliminating any COVID-related restrictions and federal officials like Dr. Fauci coming down hard on what he sees as a foolish and dangerous action. In a time when you can drive across half of the country in a day or fly from coast to coast in six hours, does this heterogeneity of approaches to a single viral threat make sense, at least relative to the overall health of Americans? 
Robbie, I'm of the mindset that our country is supposed to be a union of states with as much government as possible being run at the state level versus the federal level. I'm a huge fan of small federal government and letting states dictate for themselves more or less how they want to be run. I believe that this is what the founding fathers intended and what is ultimately best for our country. People should have the freedom to live in a state that fits their values and beliefs. Uh, things like how much funding goes into public education, et cetera, are very important to be run at the state level versus the military, for example, is something that needs to be run at the federal level. When it comes to the pandemic, I'm not certain that a one-size-fits-all approach mandated by the federal government is the right thing to do. Is rural Nebraska supposed to be managed the same way as New York City or LA? Um, the people appointed at the federal level for any pandemic task force will likely be ideologically aligned with the party running the federal government at that time. This is always going to cause controversy and frustration with the people and the media who align with the other political party. I think that fighting this or any pandemic is something that should never be politicized and is something that should unite us instead of divide us. In our current political climate, though, it is hard to envision anything uniting us and not being politicized. Obviously, with something like the coronavirus being able to cross state lines very easily, perhaps that is something that needs to be controlled at the federal level. You know, Robbie, this one's hard for me to answer, and I'm extremely torn on this one, as I am, you know, like I said, a firm believer in small federal government and states' rights, but I also feel good science and a central unified voice to follow is important during, say, a pandemic or any crisis. Honestly, Robbie, I feel you're much more qualified to answer this question than myself. You're a healthcare expert and someone who successfully led an organization of over 10,000 doctors for almost 20 years. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Jeremy, I see the approach that's needed as in this case being more similar to how we regulate interstate commerce. Given that as a nation, there are no restrictions about going from state to state, we have to be cognizant of the danger that is posed when this virus is carried from one location to another. But more than that, Jeremy, what I'm seeing, and the vaccination rollout is a great example. Every state is trying to vaccinate its people. There isn't any hesitancy amongst elected officials to do so. And so far, just about every state is running into major problems. But what else would you expect? You know, developing computerized systems distribution of vaccine that requires ultra cold temperatures, figuring out ways to bring people in to be vaccinated when you're talking about 300 million Americans. These are very complex problems. And trying to do it not just 50 times, but in essence with 1 50th of the resources, to me just doesn't make sense when there's a national health crisis a national fiscal crisis and lives are at stake. So I personally believe that we paid a major price for seeing the recommendations and the process of vaccination and testing and leaving that all at the state level. But as we've talked about in this show, Jeremy, what I actually believe 
is that the biggest price we paid is we allowed what should have been a scientific health issue to become a political one. And that happened on all sides of the aisle. Robbie, a World Health Organization study was released by the World Obesity Federation last Thursday, stating that the death rates were 10 times higher in countries such as the United States, where at least 50% of the total population was overweight. Uh, WHO Director Tedros said this must act as a wake-up call to governments globally. The correlation between obesity and mortality rates from COVID-19 is clear and compelling. Weight is now believed to be the second biggest predictor in severe illness from the virus after age. Data from the study showed that 2.2 million of the 2.5 million deaths worldwide were in countries with high levels of obesity. Uh, many media outlets were treating this study as a huge surprise, but the extreme dangers of obesity and healthy lifestyle is something you and I have discussed multiple times already on both our podcasts and in conversation with each other. Why is this being treated as a wake-up call when obesity in itself already should have been a wake-up call? Uh, we, we should never be fat shaming people or anything like that, but why is America so accepting of obesity? Where does the failure lie here? Is it with the individuals, the culture, the government, our healthcare system? Uh, you talk about this topic in your upcoming book and how not enough is being done on the preventative side and keeping people healthy to begin with. What are your thoughts on this study? Are you surprised by the results? Is it a wake-up call to you? And could you give our listeners a little preview of your thoughts on this topic as discussed in your upcoming book? So Jeremy, we've talked about this now for a year. I'm not sure why people are finding the data surprising. Uh, six months ago, we said that 88% of the people who died from COVID-19 had two or more chronic diseases, of which obesity and diabetes were two of them. Smoking, by the way, is another one, and that's a similar kind of societal problem. We're seeing the same issues coming up when it comes to this coronavirus, as we've seen relative to stroke and kidney failure, as it relates to hypertension. As you say, in my upcoming book on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, what we see is that as a nation, we have a broken healthcare system that prefers to focus on intervention and the rare type of dramatic intervention rather than the basics, rather than being able to prevent chronic disease in the first place and treat it. Obesity, diabetes, hypertension, smoking, these opioids, these are issues that continue to exist. And I don't believe that either physicians or our national health agencies have committed enough attention and resources to addressing it. If we did so, we could save hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And this year with the coronavirus being here, many more hundreds of thousands of lives than in the typical 12 month time period. Robbie, you told me that you took the COVID-19 flight from hell last week and we'll be writing about it in your Forbes column next Monday. Can you tell listeners something about it and how they can learn from your experience if they're interested? Jeremy, I had to fly from San Diego to New York City. 
And the day before, I went through the required steps to obtain my boarding pass, including checking boxes that affirmed I wasn't symptomatic or likely to be infected with the coronavirus. When I walked onto the plane, I was handed an alcohol wipe to clean my seat and the food tray in front of me and reminded to only remove my mask to eat or drink. When I sat down on the plane, opened my computer to work, I immediately heard the woman behind me start coughing almost nonstop. She asked the stewardess for Kleenex and removed her face to blow her nose and sneeze. Her face was flushed. I suspect she was feverish. Without a COVID-19 test, I couldn't be 100% sure she was infected, but the odds were extremely high. She posed a clear risk to the elderly couple in the adjoining rows, as well as the pregnant woman a few seats away. And from there to the takeoff, to the final landing, the problems only became worse and the coughing persistent for the six hour journey. The article being published next Monday reviews my conversations with the stewardess and the brusque and dismissive response I received. The entire experience was representative in my mind of our nation's ineffective efforts to minimize COVID-19 spread. As a country, we have a preference to take inconsequential actions rather than the ones that will save tens or even hundreds of thousands of lives. Listeners who want to read the article can go to my homepage, Robert Pearl MD, and sign up for my monthly musings. A link to the article will appear in next week's publication. Anyone else who wants to delve even deeper into this issue can order my upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, available through Amazon and through Barnes and Noble. By the way, all profits go to Doctors Without Borders, but this to me is the same issue you just asked me about. The priorities of American medicine are wrong and they account for the reason that amongst the 12 industrialized nations, the United States is last in longevity and childhood mortality and maternal mortality. And yet we spend nearly twice as much per person on healthcare as any of these other countries the culture of medicine is uncaring, and as a result, it is killing both doctors and patients. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.